Well, I want to uh, encourage you, invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11, we really come to a, a wonderful, wonderful text. Of course, the Lord's table is set before us. And we come to that passage, and certainly you've heard it spoken of before, in John eleven thirty five, where Jesus, what? Weeps. It's the shortest verse, I probably should say, in the English Bible. That is not the shortest verse in the Greek Bible. Uh, it's three uh, words in the Greek text, where it says Jesus wept, but in First Thessalonians 5, 17, Pray without ceasing is two Greek words, but very well. Don't mean to get technical. We call it the shortest verse in the English Bible when it says that Jesus wept. And there is so much in this verse and the context in which it comes to us. It was Spurgeon who said right here of that text in John eleven thirty five. he says, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost, he said, attentive consideration. I think he's right. There is just so much packed in there. Of course, it comes to us in the context, and we're looking at John chapter 11 on the raising of Lazarus from the grave as a demonstration of his deity as the Son of God, specifically that he is Lord over death. I mean, that just emerges clearly. He is Lord over sin, over death. He is Lord over the grave. In fact, looking back, just as the feeding of the 5,000 illustrated our Lord's claim to be the bread of life in John 6.35, so also the raising of Lazarus illustrated his claim to be the resurrection and the life, as he stated in John 11, 25. But we come to this text here, and we've been looking at the Gospel of John, going at a quick clip here, which is fine. You remember that we opened up a few weeks ago and looked at chapter 11, 1 through 16, really on the events surrounding the death of Lazarus. In fact, he was clearly dead, as it says in 11.14. Then last week, we looked at the interchange between the Lord and Martha. And we looked at that in verses 17 through 27. And we come this morning to the interchange here carrying on between our Lord Jesus Christ and Mary, and it's found there in 1128 down through 1137. It is the place where Jesus wept, and so I've titled this message, Jesus Weeps. And I would probably ask you if it would be interesting if we took a little quiz on what does that mean, Jesus wept, and why did he weep, if you will, and we're going to talk about that today. But in this interchange between our Lord and Mary, it reveals the compassion of our Savior. It reveals the insight uh, into the Savior that is frankly remarkable. I think it will set the table for the Lord's table for us today. But you remember after Martha and her confession, look at verse 27. She said, 
or it says there in 1127, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. She makes, does Martha, that confession. As soon as she makes that confession, she goes from that place where she had met the Lord Jesus Christ who had been coming in from Bethany of Jordan at the death of Lazarus, his friend. Now we know from the text he had been dead for four days. But she goes, does Martha, to get her sister Mary to a private meeting. And here we, we make that transition. And John is such a skillful writer. And he's so skillful in narrative that he closes one interchange and he opens another. And so we do so this morning on this interchange between our Lord and Mary. Let's just pick the text up, okay? It's fascinating. It says, and when she had said this, Martha, verse 28, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now, it mentions that in verse 27 there, that in verse 28, that Mary, she came to Mary in private. And we don't always know why is it or how is it that she came in private, but we, we just assume that if you look back in chapter 11, verse 19, it says there, many of the Jews had come to Mar- Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. It says many of the Jews were there. And so if you can imagine this scene, they're in this place called Bethany. But Bethany, according to the text in verse 18, was just two miles off of Jerusalem. I mentioned that we think maybe this family was a prominent family. Prominent in the sense that many Jews came to console those sisters at the death of their brother, Lazarus. It also could just, we also know that they were prominent, maybe even wealthy, because in the next chapter, Mary, you remember, broke an alabaster vase and poured it on the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what she broke and what she poured out on his feet was very, very expensive. And we'll look at that in the weeks to come. So it could be that as Mary's sitting in her house, Martha went out to meet the Lord. Martha had that, that incredible interchange with the Lord that we looked at last week. And then after making that confession, she runs to Mary. And possibly she goes into the house. It says there in the text that it's private. Possibly, possibly she leans over to her sister and said that the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Now, I don't want to get into all of this. There's so much I have to leave out every week. But I think it's fascinating that Martha said to her sister, the teacher is calling you. Not a teacher, but the teacher. The teacher of Israel as he was recognized in John chapter 3. What's fascinating about that is in Jewish culture, the rabbis would have never taught women. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ is identified as the teacher, and he taught women. And I would only make this statement. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Christianity that liberated women in that day. And so here's just a reflection of that. But she was calling, or he was calling for her. Now, it could have been that 
he spoke that in private to her because remember, he's coming back into Jerusalem, the very place that they were trying to kill him. And so she's summoned by the Lord. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text again now in 29. And, and I think John just wants to see it in, in present tense. When she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. In other words, in the language, she just, as soon as she said that, boom, she's up. She had been seated. And it says in verse 29 that she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, look at this note in verse 30. Jesus had not come into the village. In other words, he was not directly in Bethany. But verse 30 says he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. In other words, it was supposed to be a private interchange with Mary and our Lord, but as she rises quickly, as the text says, those Jewish people who were in that home to console Mary followed her, and they supposed that she was going to the tomb. It would be very customary if someone died. I remember I told you last week that there was seven days of grief. Sometimes that grief and that consolation extended to 30 days, but often on a daily basis, they would go to visit the tomb. Remember, they were placed into the tomb on the first day. And so as they see Mary get up, they follow her, assuming that she's going out to that place of the tomb. It does say that they rose and went quickly with her. And uh, obviously, in the Lord's sovereignty, this would add many, many, many more witnesses, would it not, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, well, what happened when she got to the tomb? We'll look down in the text in verse 32. It says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, she says virtually the same thing as her sister Martha said. Look back in chapter 11, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, she says the same thing. She, different than Martha, and I don't want to get too much into this. Sometimes the scholars and commentators go into all the nuances of this, and they say that, you know, there's just differences here, and I don't want to make too much of that. But I would tell you this, rather than there being a dialogue that he had with Martha, this one was different. When Mary sees him, she falls at his, what? Feet. And, and she, so she's always more intense. She's always more emotional. And when we do find her, she's falling at the feet of Christ, whether it was listening to him in Luke chapter 10, you know, at his feet while Martha was busy serving. Here she falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, how do you take that tone? One commentator harshly said, Mary gives the impression of being nothing, this is what he said, but a complaining woman, this is what he said. And I thought, I don't, I don't see that at all, at all. I, I, I think, how do you look at that tone? Is it with a bite? Lord, if you had been here, oh, Lord. I actually think it's an expression of faith. If you had been here, it could have been different. Lord, if, if you 
we're here. And, and obviously, she's limited a little bit in her faith, but I don't take it as she's a complaining woman. In fact, I think she met no reproach to the Lord. It was her grief. It was her sorrow over the loss of her brother, Lazarus. In fact, Mary's statement reflects faith in the Lord's power to heal, but her grief was clouding her vision to see clearly who he was. So she is grief-stricken, beloved. She is just heartbroken over the loss of her brother, beloved, who in all likelihood was the breadwinner for that family. Now, here's the pivot of the whole thing, though. Look at verse 33. This is fascinating. It says, when Jesus, watch this, saw her weeping and that the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Now, just you can picture this as they, as they come to Mary, who didn't go to the tomb, who goes to the place where Jesus was at. It says there that he saw this, that they're weeping. And that the Jews, in addition to Mary, was also weeping. Now, I want you to know, that's an interesting word there for weeping. It doesn't just mean they're crying. It's the Greek word kalao. kalao, And it just means they are profusely weeping. In fact, I don't even think weeping really does justice to the word. They are wailing. This is almost an uncontrolled sobbing. And usually it's with emotion and usually it's out loud, okay? So as Jesus, as Mary comes at his feet, she wants to get a private word. It doesn't become very private. The Jews then come with her. And as Jesus beholds this, you can imagine, just put yourself in that place, loud, profuse, weeping and sobbing. Now, what's interesting, look back at the scripture in verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, just you can underline that if you want here. This is very important that we follow this closely together. And I would say when we get to that verse in 33, we really have some work to do. And I would say this, what initially strikes us is that the Lord who seemingly, right, as we've been tracking this, who was detached from the death of Lazarus for the purpose in verse 4 of God's glory being revealed, the very one with supernatural knowledge, the very one who is actually sovereign over death, the very one who is the resurrection and the life, is now weeping with these sisters and these Jews in just a moment. It says that Jesus wept. Now, I want to unpack this just for a moment, especially for communion. What does that phrase mean? Look at it again in verse 33. What does that phrase mean? He was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. What does that mean? I mean, it's a very interesting phrase, and I've read a lot on it this week. And one said, one commentator, and I think incorrectly, he says, here's what took place. He said, it implies that our Lord let out an involuntary gasp there in the text. 
In other words, when he saw them weeping, saw her weeping, he lets out this gasp. He said the wind just went out of him. He said the point is our Lord was so caught up in both sisters' emotion that he just involuntarily gasped. He felt the sorrow with everything he had. And the verse ends by saying he was troubled. This writer said Mary and Martha's sorrows were taken to his heart. He said that he enters the sorrow that he could have prevented in such a way that he gasped. And the writer said his whole body shudders and he begins to weep. And he finally said that is the perspective Christ wants us to have. If you are hurting, he wants you to know that he weeps with you. End of quote. But as I read that and I begin to study this word deeply moved and the word troubled, there's a problem with what that writer said. That phrase, beloved, there, and and again, I'm just trying to teach us and learn something about the character of the Lord Jesus Christ today. It says that when Christ saw these women, he was deeply moved. It is an interesting Greek word, you don't, ibrimomai, and I'm just going to tell you what it means, okay? It means to be moved to anger. That's what it means. It means to be agitated, okay? So I don't know what you think when he saw them and he was deeply moved and he's troubled. The word literally means in the language he's moved to anger, he's agitated. That word right there describes an inward emotional indignation. He is deeply moved to anger, is what the text says, by what he saw. Now, most English translations soften that. They conceal that phrase. Some translations say things like this. He groaned in his spirit when he saw them weeping. Or another one says, he sighed heavily. Another one says that he was deeply touched. Or here in the ESV, he was deeply moved in spirit. But all of that is without linguistic justification. In fact, a lot of the translators just pick up the other translations The Jerusalem Bible says Jesus spoke in great distress, okay? Good News Bible says that his heart was touched. But what I found here is that I think these are weak, if you will, translations of what the word of God says here. In fact, the word in extra biblical Greek, that ibrimomai, referred to the snorting of horses, okay? In other words, as he beholds this, something's wrong. It's agitating our Lord. It's, he's deeply moved, but he's, he's, he's angry is the thoughts. In fact, that word, when applied to human beings, it suggests anger or outrage or even emotional indignation, okay? In fact, the, the church... Man of God, Luther, here's how he translated this Greek word here in this phrase. He was angry in spirit and distressed. He just gave the literal meaning to it. Not just deeply moved, but Luther said he's angry in the spirit and distressed. 
Another translator put it this way of the phrase, he became angry in the spirit and was disgusted. Okay? In fact, in the Bowers lexical Greek New Testament, which is a very weighty tool, it cites evidence in the early church that this verse was translated to be indignant or displeased in oneself to be, Bowers said, inwardly angry. So listen, beloved, it is lexically impossible to reduce these tears to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. It's fascinating to me. In fact, B.B. Warfield, the great New Testament scholar, said very forcibly of this verse, he said, what John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state, he said, not of uncontrollable grief, but inexpressible anger. So this is fascinating to me. He sees them weeping and they're wailing. They're weeping, it's sobbing, uncontrolled, unrestrained. And really the text says he's deeply moved in irritation and even anger. Look at the text again in 1133. It's not all that it says. And he is greatly, what? Troubled, it says there. And that word troubled means to become very agitated. It means to become disturbed. the, The Greek word is to become unsettled. And in the New Testament, it describes very strong emotions. You say, well, how strong? Well, I I can't take you to all the places that word is, but I'll take you to a few in the context and in this book. Look at the next chapter in John chapter 12. He uses that word troubled here, and you tell me how troubled he was. He's on his way to the Passover. He's on his way to his last week of his life, and he said this in John 12, 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Oh, Jesus was troubled. You would think he was disturbed, wasn't he? He knew that he came to die. And it was these this week that he would die. And his soul is troubled. It's deeply troubled. In fact, one other place, look over the next chapter in John 13. And you tell me if this troubled our Lord In John 13, 21, at the Passover in the final week, he said, after these things, Jesus, here it is again, was troubled in spirit and testified. And here's why. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And so he's troubled over his imminent death. He's troubled over the defection of Judas. And and here when Jesus came and saw these women and these other Jews weeping. He's deeply moved. I'm going to just phrase it this way, to anger. And he's deeply troubled in his spirit. I want to ask you why and what, okay? First is why. Why the strong emotion of being deeply moved to anger and so troubled? So troubled that it's fair to say that literally when he beheld Mary and these other Jews... He shook under the force of it. I mean, he's moved. I don't think it's always moved in the way that we just naturally read it, but he's moved. And here's the, that's the why, but the what is this? 
what is the object of his anger? That's really the question. Because whatever moved him there was going to cause him to weep in 1135. What is the object of his anger? Now, follow the logic with me, okay? There's a number of things that, that are suggested. And I certainly don't want to be overly dogmatic here. But I think one is imperative that we look at it, and it will be the third one. So let me suggest three items that are the object of his anger. Number one, some people would say he was deeply moved out of compassion, out of compassion because of his love for them and their family. In other words, it's just his compassion. It's what we would maybe naturally think until we turn this. But there's a problem there with it is something's bothering him. And it's really giving you a window and insight into the person of Jesus Christ. Something is moving him. Something is troubling him. And so I don't think it's just only out of compassion, though I would not want you to miss that. Secondly, some commentators think he's deeply moved to anger. Watch this. Opposite of compassion, because of their unbelief in our Lord's ability or lack thereof to raise Lazarus from the dead. In other words, what moved them was Mary weeping. And what moved them was the Jews weeping, even though he said this sickness earlier in chapter 11 shall not lead to death. And so as he sees these ladies, he's just, unbelief gets them. I I mean, if I've been with you this long, would be the thought, and you still don't know who I am. And so he's moved by their unbelief. Despite all that he's revealed to them, they were in denial of the resurrection that he clearly taught in chapter 5, that he clearly taught in chapter 6. He just said, though it be private to Martha, that I am the resurrection and the life. And so here he's deeply moved to anger over the sin of unbelief. He's visibly moved by their lack of faith in him and his power to raise the dead. And, and some people bite at this, and maybe there's part of it there, but the, we would say that sorrow is one thing, but despair is another matter. Have you ever been to an unbelieving funeral? Oh, man. I, I've done them. And, and, and you talk about being at a place where there's no hope, and that's it, and it's a tragic circumstance, and it's a, a young person, and, and the family's unbelieving, there's grief. But what do you do even for a believer who knows there's a future and they're like Paul said, like the rest of men in First Thessalonians who grieve as though there's no hope. So they say that he's deeply moved by their unbelief. And I, I just would share to me, it just seems a little harsh, okay? I mean, they just lost their brother. This is Martha. This is Mary. All through chapter 11, they love our Lord. I find it difficult to think that there's unbelief here, especially after her confession in 27, when at the end of 26, he said, do you believe this? In verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe uh, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So I, I, I recognize this. You say, well, Scott, what is it? I think deeply moved is best understood by what follows in the text. You say, well, what follows? Thanks for asking. Look at verse 34. 
he, he said, he's greatly troubled at the end of 33, and he said, it's interesting, it's the only question ever asked in John this way, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says in verse 35, Jesus, what? He wept. Now, now I don't know if, if they're standing there with him, and he said, come and you will see, and then he wept there. Or if as they went from the place that they met him, which was probably not far away, that as he beheld the tomb of Lazarus, that as they arrived, he wept. Okay? Now, I don't want you to miss this. He wept. And I, I'm just, you say, okay, he, he wept. No, what it's saying there in the language is that he burst into tears, okay? That's, that's what the text says. But it's interesting to me, and I'm not trying to give you a, a language study here. He didn't weep like other people wept. That's not what the text says. The other people were wailing and weeping. The word is different there. The wailing and the weeping is kalao, if you will, but he uses a different word here in 1135. And I'm not trying to do too much with you out of the language, but I do want you to know that this word that you hold in your hand is fully inspired. It's fully inspired by an almighty God and by the Holy Spirit, and words matter. Jesus didn't weep like they wept. He wept, but it does mean that he burst into tears. The word is dakruo, and it's the only place this verb is used in all of the New Testament. And what it's saying is that he burst into tears, but they're subdued tears. I don't want to say silent tears because they're, they're tears, but it's as though John wanted us to know that his weeping is different than their weeping. And you say, well, why do I say that? Well, listen, here's the key. These are tears, yes, but it's not for the death of Lazarus, nor is he weeping for the sisters, for he would soon raise Lazarus in the next passage last week. Rather, he is weeping. Listen, beloved, this is really what I believe the meaning is. He is weeping here for the grief and the anguish that results in death. That's why he's weeping. In other words, when it says that he's deeply moved, thirdly, I think this will come up, he's deeply moved, he's angry over, beloved, the sorrow and the pain that sin and death brought to this family. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus was angry, and here it is, at what sin does. That's why he's angry. He's angry, I'll say it again, at what sin does. And beloved, as we look behind the the screen here into the life of our Lord, this is not a professional mourner's tears. This is a sudden burst of genuine sorrow over the carnage brought about because of sin and disease and death in a fallen world. That's why he's weeping. Sin and death is the cause of his tears. It is the cause of his sorrow. He was angered, yes, 
That's why I believe that's what the word means. He's angered. He's agitated over sin and death itself and the ravaging effects of death in this world. In other words, beloved, I just would say that as he comes and sees these women weeping, I think in his heart he's saying, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. An enemy that in Christ's life I've come to slay. And so death, like sin, was an enemy for him as it was for Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Beloved, our Lord is angry at death itself. He identifies with the grief that caused the death of the loved one and he's angry over it because that's not the design of the original creation. But such as the fall came, we understand sin entered and when sin entered, death entered. So these are tears of anger at the reality of death that he came to destroy. He is moved in his spirit over the evil of death itself. Warfield again said, tears fill his eyes. He said, but this is incidental. He said the emotion that tore his breast and clamored for utterance was rage. And then Warfield said, it, was, it is death that is the object of his wrath. Listen, he being God hates all sin. He hates what sin and disease and death do. It creates separation for all of us. I think MacArthur described the scene, and I think appropriately. He said, this is strong weeping, talking about the women in 33 and the Jews. This is strong weeping and wailing. It means to sob, and when he sees all this sobbing, it says he was deeply moved, and that word can mean being angry, being indignant. It was It can mean groaning. It can mean feeling inner pain. It can mean turmoil. This is deep emotion. This is the word that sort of grabs everything. There is sorrow. There is sadness. There is uh, indignance. There is anger. There is suffering. It's just, he said, every emotion grips him in his spirit, in his inner person. And he was troubled or he allowed himself to feel the trouble. He let himself feel everything. He's sad because he lost his friend. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But there's more than this. It's not just that the pain that he feels in the loss of a friend or the pain that he feels as he identifies with these sisters, he feels far more transcendent pain. He understands that he is surrounded by unbelievers who are representatives of a nation of unbelievers who are all being catapulted into eternal judgment because they will not receive him. He understands, finally, he said, the pain and suffering of all humanity that faces the inevitable hour of human loss. Listen, I don't know if that's how you looked at it, but that's what it means. Oh, he weeps, but he's not only just identifying with them and their loss. He hates what sin does. It results in death. Beloved, this is a massive moment of agony. Maybe a little bit like his agony in the garden as he anticipates the cross. He deeply enters in not only to the wounded hearts and sorrows of people who are broken because they've lost one they've loved, but he sees infinitely far more than that. He understands what sin has done to the world and what unbelief has done to these people who are gathered around him. 
And he weeps. He weeps. But you know what's so true? Tell me if you think this makes sense. They missed it all together. You say, why? Look at verse 36. The Jews said, see how he loved him. And I would say, well, that's true. Our Lord did love him. It said that in 11.3 and 11.5. It's very true. But he's not reaping for that reason. The Jews failed to understand that his tears were more over sin and death than over the loss of Lazarus. Doesn't that make sense to you? I mean, our Lord knows he's going to go right into the next chapter, and we really need to get there next week because I feel like he's been in the grave four weeks, not four days. By the time the Lord knew he's going to raise him, so he's not weeping, if you will, because, oh, how he loved him. He said his, sin, his sickness does not lead to death. He's going to raise him. He's, he's weeping for all those things that we just said. But some of them, look at the next response in verse 37. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Obviously, he's referring to chapter 9, 6 through 11, when he healed that blind man who had been blind from birth. And, and again, I just would ask you, do you take this as a sharp rebuke? I mean, it could be, but I don't think so. I, I think they're somewhat like Mary and Martha, whoever these were there, some of them. I think they just said, hey, couldn't he open the eyes of the blind man? And also, the one who did that, couldn't he have done this? Now, now the answer was, he certainly could have. In their minds, he could have, I think. But the window in their minds at the same time closed because he had been in the grave for how many days? Four days. And remember, as I taught last week, Some Jewish people believe that the Spirit hovered over the grave seeking to re-enter into the person who was in that grave and then upon seeing the decomposition of the body, that Spirit would depart when it decomposed and we know that within 72 hours, a life was decomposing. So they thought it's all lost again. So I don't think this is necessarily a harsh or a a mocking comment here. But I want you to notice one other thing. Look at verse 38. Second time it's used. Then Jesus, verse 38, he's going to raise him here. Deeply moved again. We probably can say deeply agitated and angry again. I think he just hates what sin does. And he's moved again to anger Enough for me to say it reveals his humanity to say the least, does it not? Listen, we do not have an amaton as a god or, a, you know, just a, a, a god who's, uh, the Greeks used to say that gods are apatheia, which we obviously get our English word apathetic from. They felt that the Greek gods, that they never entered into emotion. They never entered into pain. They never entered into sorrow. They never entered into to weeping. For to do so, they taught, would have not made them gods. And that's what the Greek gods teach, but not our God. He gets there, and I'm not hiding it. He burst into tears, but he burst into tears because of such a hatred over the enemy called sin and death. 
Now, wonder the Bible says, and maybe you've been thinking about this in Isaiah 53, that he was a man of what? Sorrow, and he's acquainted with grief. Do you know how sometimes when you're walking in the spirit and you see things on the news and you behold things just even in the last two weeks in our country, and there's just a deep indignation that just hates sin and hates what alcohol does and hates what drugs do and hates what abuse does and all of it. Imagine being God and being human and being coming face to face with the enemy that took Lazarus' life. Listen, oh, he's angry, but he's angry over what sin does. Let me say this to you. In John's gospel, here's what's precious. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, will go and die for you. In order to deliver you, in order to deliver myself, God sent his son into this world, perfect, sinless he was, keeping all of the law, and yet I can't help but see, because in the next chapter, as Lazarus died, he is going to see himself in that picture, dying for you. Beloved, look back at 1125. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And I love this confidence. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what? Live. And Jesus Christ came and entered into our life to die in our place. Would you just look over at Hebrews just for a moment? Just one scripture as we turn our attention here to worship the Savior. But in Hebrews chapter 2, there's that wonderful verse tucked right in there, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, you know, when you're turning to Hebrews 2, we talk a lot about glory we, in our church because that is our goal, to glorify God now, now, we know that he has intrinsic glory. We don't make God more glorified. He has intrinsic glory. It's glory to himself. But one of the features of our glorifying him is to honor him, is to praise him. And so as we teach from the scripture, we're wanting to expand our view of Christ. That's my goal for you. In fact, I pray that you'd go back and ponder that he wept. That, that he doesn't weep the, just only the tears of sorrow. Certainly they were. He loved his family. But he weeps so much because he hates sin so much, but he hated sin so much that he gave himself for you as we partake of communion. Look at Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore, it says, the children share in flesh and blood in 2.14. He himself, speaking of Christ, likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the what? The devil. He came to defeat it. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, beloved, John will tell us as we go forward that he 
praise God, died in our place, that the death he died, we shall no longer die, and that if you put your faith and hope in him, you shall never die. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Listen, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's him here in his humanity entering into the dregs of sin of this world, the dregs of what the devil himself was all about, and he might destroy the one who has power over the, over the power of death. That is the devil. He destroyed him. And when he rose again on that third day, he arose victoriously. And we celebrate that today.